All right, well, good morning. So it's the first Sunday of the year. In the past, I would sometimes take uh, the first Sunday of the year and talk about a subject that would deal with the life of our church family. It might be related to uh, perhaps some changes that are in the works, or I might elaborate on one of our policies and practices, or I might talk about areas where, you know, we need to do better in. Have I ever done a sermon on punctuality? Maybe step, maybe I have, I don't remember. Seems like every third year or something, but it could be any number of things. And depending on the subject, I might, you know, hold off and talk about such matters on the Sunday when we have our congregational meeting, usually at the end of the month or beginning of February. So this year I have three subjects that I actually want to get into, three issues, two for this morning, first Sunday of the year, and then one for February 4th, the Sunday of our congregational meeting, and each one deals with one of our church practices or policies. So when visitors start showing an interest in our church, these are the ones that they typically have questions about and occasionally even some pushback on, so it's probably a good idea to revisit them from time to time so as to explain and to remind us all why we do what we do. Uh, the first one deals with our practice of women teaching adults, um, in particular that of giving an occasional sermon on a Sunday morning. Over the years, we have actually had some visitors checking us out as a potential church home who just moved on once they learned that we allow for that. Um, another practice uh, I want to talk about uh, is a church membership, especially when it comes to how intentional we are on this. And Likewise, I know of those who, in their shopping around for a church, scratched us off the list after having a discussion with me about that particular thing. They saw the whole thing as dis disagreeable, even unbiblical, and, and were pretty adamant that they would never join a church, ever. Uh, the third one I want to get into um, deals with the way that we scrutinize songs that are chosen for the morning service. There are a number of popular songs out there that Christians enjoy, but we might not include them here for a number of reasons, and to some, those reasons can come across as being too picky, and it's not uncommon to even hear that our rules on this are, you know, is quenching the spirit, and I don't think we've lost any visitors over that one, but there are those probably even among us here who can be a, probably a bit frustrated with this at times because of those restrictions. So we can't spend a lot of time on any of these, but hopefully I can provide at least uh, the basic reasons for the policies that we have. And whether one finds those reasons to be compelling or even sufficient will, of course, rest with the individual. And just to clarify something up front, members are not required to agree with um, all of our practices and policies here. They simply must accept the fact that this is how the church conducts itself in these matters and refrain from stirring things up and causing divisions over them. And we all realize that as a church, we have to have certain policies and practices in place in order to function in an orderly way. And these are at best, you know, deal with secondary issues. They don't involve any of the core um, beliefs of our faith. So this morning, we're going to go over two subjects, women teaching adults, as in giving an occasional sermon, and this will be followed by the practice of church membership. So each of these will be roughly 15 or 20 minutes. And then a month from now, for Sunday of February, I'll talk about why we tend to be somewhat fussy regarding the songs that we use on Sunday mornings. And um, because we will need to make room for the congregational meeting that morning, uh, that message will be short as well, 15 to 20 minutes. 
Okay, so even if you don't have questions about any of these, and I will assume that most uh, folks here don't, there's still value in going over them from time to time, and it can especially be helpful when you're talking about these things, these matters with those outside our church. All right, so that said, let's get into it. Ready? <laughs> All right, so over the past 50 years or so, there's been no small measure of controversy over the role of women in ministry. It's a big subject. And um, it's not something that we, um, you know, within the Christian community enjoy universal agreement on. Even within conservative evangelical churches, we can find all kinds of different practices. For instance, some allow women to serve in any capacity, while others prohibit women from any kind of teaching where adult males are present. Some allow women to teach Sunday school and lead discussions in home groups, but don't allow them to give a Sunday morning sermon. A number of churches let women serve on church boards, entrusting them with a level of authority over the church, but will not allow them to fulfill the role or fill the role of a pastor, and so on. So the discussion centers primarily around a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and to some extent, 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 35, and in an attempt to better understand those passages and how to apply them and others that are related to the subject, the elders spent a number of months way back in 2003 in study and discussion on this so as to establish a policy for our church. And that was over 20 years ago, and so I don't remember who all was involved, but the group included some who were not elders at the time. Denny, of course, was instrumental in gathering together the resources that we used in that study. And then 17 years later, more recently here in 2020, we revisited the subject again taking into consideration developments in recent scholarship. And again, this consisted of a larger group as well. So what follows is a brief summary of those two discussions. Brief. So again, we can't give this an exhaustive treatment today. And this is one of those policies where we could assume that some of our members may actually see things differently, probably so. We might have some who would argue that the Bible calls for something more restrictive, more limiting than what our position provides, and others who might argue that the Bible allows for less restrictions, less limitations than what we do. But fortunately, uh, to the credit of this church, this has never been a subject of controversy here, and this because everyone has voluntarily yielded to our practice for the greater good and perhaps doing so under their breath, protesting under the breath, but you know, that's okay. So at the starting point, we recognize that biblically there is no ontological difference between men and women. That is, before God, both share equally in the same responsibility in creation and the same inheritance in redemption. And this is very important to keep in mind and it is foundational to the subject at hand. There is nothing in scripture to indicate that there is anything inherent in a woman that makes her unfit to teach adults, including adult males, or for that matter, leading a church. Um, if there is something like that, well, the Bible just doesn't say. We are therefore left to conclude that by nature, women are not more easily deceived than men. They are not less spiritual. They are not less intelligent. They are not less capable. And any weakness they might have in relation to men, as spoken of in 1 Peter 3, would be physical. So this ontological equality before God is our starting point. The question then is not of value or function or ability or spirituality or status before God, 
but of role. And this brings us to 1 Timothy 2, passage that um, you're going to be familiar with. Verse 12 is the main focus of the discussion. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. The statement seems simple enough, but any conclusion we draw from it must be harmonized with what we find in the rest of Scripture. And also, very important, this verse needs to be understood in its context, in the surrounding verses, before and after. And what makes some of this a challenge is that the verses that follow, 13 through 15, where Paul appears to be commenting on his statement, can actually be kind of difficult when it follow, in following his reasoning, especially this business about women being saved through childbearing. So again, we can't take time to break all of this down. My plan is to simply give, my plan is to give most of our attention this morning to the main point itself there in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Now that statement itself is pretty direct. Clearly, Paul is prohibiting women from doing something. What people don't agree on is what it is exactly that he is prohibiting them from doing. So we have several possibilities here. <clears throat> is he saying that women may not teach, period, that there are actually two prohibitions here? First, they are not allowed to teach anyone, and second, they must not assume authority over men. That's one possibility. Or is he prohibiting women from teaching men, that teaching other women and children would be permitted? A third possibility is Paul intending to connect teaching to authority, that the two words go hand in hand, and so what he is forbidding here is women sharing in the authoritative teaching of the church, which is reserved for elders. Or is Paul addressing a particular situation there in this church at Ephesus where Timothy is currently serving? His prohibition, therefore, is specific, local, and he never intended it to be universal. Perhaps some women there were teaching false doctrines at the time, and needed to be silenced. <clears throat> so let's take a moment to just kind of work through these. The first two possibilities are similar, so I will treat them together. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, several points stand out. Many passages either support or complement women teaching others in various capacities. For example, Paul tells Titus to encourage older women to teach younger women to love their husbands and children. Solomon calls on his reader to embrace the instructions they receive from their fathers and mothers. And when Priscilla and her husband Aquila heard the new believer Apollos speaking boldly about the gospel, they invited him into their home so that they could, both of them, better equip him. In addition, certain activities in corporate worship are instructional by nature. In Colossians 3.16, Paul says, "'Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly,' as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs, and so forth. And this charge is given to everyone, both men and women. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul permits women to participate in public prayers and prophecies. And later in chapter 14, he refers to such public prophecies in the church as instructional. And all this has to be taken into consideration, because as we know, Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't find anything in the New Testament that suggests that women may not, when men are present, participate in singing worship songs, or may not, when men are present, pray and prophesy, 
or are not allowed to, when men are present, encourage and exhort each other, even though these activities constitute at least some measure of sharing biblical and theological truths. If Paul is categorically prohibiting women from teaching men, um, well, this would have a lot of ramifications in our modern setting when you think about it. What about women sharing comments in a Sunday school class or home group? What about books authored or co-authored by women? Um, or articles written in Christian magazines. For instance, a number of people here get World Magazine, but there are a number of columns written by women in that magazine. What about songs used in, in church services written by women? Again, songs are teaching tools. Here we might think of Fanny Cosby, who wrote 8,000 hymns. Some of them we sing here. If helping to lead music, would a woman be allowed to offer comments between songs? Could a woman offer up? a congregational prayer on a Sunday morning or pray in a home group meeting? What about a missionary report on a Sunday morning that might include any kind of exhortation or comments on a Bible passage? If in a theological conversation with friends, would a woman be allowed to weigh in if a man is present? So there's a lot here to, you know, think about. <laughs> Whatever the case, it becomes virtually impossible to harmonize either of those first two interpretations of 1 Timothy 2.12 with direct statements made in the New Testament and with the whole spirit of the every member ministry philosophy that the New Testament itself advocates. For this reason, uh, possibilities one and two do not seem to have any merit. The third possibility is that Paul is not referring to every kind of teaching, but to a specific kind of teaching. And this is where we connect the word teaching there in verse 12 to authority. Therefore, the type of teaching that is being restricted, limited to men, is that which is reserved for elders, those who are entrusted with the teaching authority of the church. For instance, um, there are certain subjects and issues that should only be addressed by them. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Likewise, they are the ones who should be doing most of the teaching in the church, they are the ones who are entrusted with the ongoing, continual responsibility of providing food from God's word. Along that same line, all teaching of the church, in the church, or at least supposed to be, is to be under their oversight with their permission. They are the ones, according to Hebrews, who will stand before God on what the church teaches. And on this view, the teaching of the role of elder, which is limited to men, is different um, than that of non-elders, which is available to both qualified men and qualified women. And that is our position here at this church. Any teaching opportunity afforded to a qualified non-elder man should not be off-limits to a qualified non-elder woman. But yet Paul restricts the office of the elder itself to men. So all this is consistent with um, the context of the passage. The verses that follow, just go back to that, um, the verses that follow soon lead into a list regarding the qualifications of elders, beginning of chapter 3. The chapter break there is unfortunate, as it appears that everything here is a unit and belongs together. The Greek word used in verse 12 for teaching is one that in the pastoral epistles almost always refers to the authoritative teaching that is to be faithfully preserved by the elders. The verb to teach is a present infinitive, that is, it's an ongoing activity or practice, as in to be doing something, 
and this corresponds with the regular, continual, ongoing te teaching of the church, elders, which is different, substantially different, than that of sharing an occasional sermon, an opportunity afforded to qualified non-elders. And also, if the phrase to teach or have authority over is matched with any church office or role, it would clearly be that of an elder. So again, it is our position based on our best understanding of this passage and trying to harmonize it with other passages, is that 1 Timothy 2.12 is not categorically prohibiting women from teaching men, but is prohibiting them from serving in a certain teaching role in the church, the role of an elder or pastor. It is, again, it's not because they're less spiritual or less capable or not as smart or are inferior to men or anything like that. It is because, as Paul explains in the next verse, he expects the church to follow the blueprint set forth in the creation of Adam and Eve. Adam was created first by God's design, and with that came seniority and authority. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11 as well, and it is a model that is to be observed in the home and in the church. Now, <clears throat> many churches agree with this overall interpretation that I've just outlined here in, from 1 Timothy 2.12, but yet will not open the pulpit up to women to share an occasional sermon. And personally, I can respect that, that policy as long as they are consistent with that. If they see the Sunday morning pulpit as something set apart, something reserved only for elders, then okay, great, that works. But you have to be consistent with that. That means only elders. No non-elders, no guest speakers, no missionaries coming in to share a report, and so on. And we are not that restrictive here, and that's actually by design. It is largely due to the every-member ministry philosophy that drives a lot of how we approach things. This means that there are times here when elders address things from the Sunday morning pulpit, give sermons that belong to their specific role, like today and times when they give sermons that would be just as appropriate for a non-elder to give, like the one Tim gave not that long ago on prayer. The fourth possibility, <clears throat> uh, you know I had all these highlighted, I forgot to do all that. All right, here we go. I put all that work into it and was, didn't even benefit from it. <clears throat> all right, the fourth possibility we need to look at is that Paul is addressing a specific situation there in Ephesus. And it is suggested that he wrote this to silence certain women who were advancing false teachings. And he never meant it to be a universal restriction for all situations at all places in all times. Therefore, outside Ephesus, women are allowed to teach men and are even allowed to serve as elders and pastors. And part of the, that argument includes this. To say that women aren't allowed to do everything a man is allowed to do is to say that they are inherently inferior. So we don't have time to address all the pertinent issues of this view, but some brief observations are in order. First, there's no evidence from first century Ephesus that supports the proposed scenario. Nothing in the letter itself or in any book in the New Testament or, or anywhere. There may actually have been women teachers advancing false doctrines there, but we don't have any objective reason to believe that. In the verse, secondly, in the verses that follow, Paul supports his reasoning by reminding us about the order of creation. If anything denotes permanence, it is an appeal to the way things were in the beginning. Thirdly, if false teachings were the problem, then why not address that instead of just restricting all women? 
<clears throat> this position here also argues from something Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3, where he writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one Christ Jesus. And the argument, of course, is that churches uh, are not to, that in the church there is not to be any distinctions. All are equal. All should be afforded equal opportunities for everything. Well, the response to this is that Paul is talking about our equal standing before God. This does not mean that all differences are obliterated. There are still males and females, and God can specify differences and roles between them. His point here is that none of these differences, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, makes us um, affects our standing before God, makes us more pleasing to him. None of them earn merit in our salvation. We all stand before God equally in need of a Savior, equally unworthy of his mercy, and yet equally adopted into his family and equally blessed by the promise of salvation. And in this way, we are one in Christ. <clears throat> okay, a couple other points to make here. <clears throat> there in verse 11, and again at the end of verse 12, Paul exhorts women to be quiet, to learn in quietness. This is often viewed as something that is like overly restrictive. In a society that did not typically afford women the same opportunities to learn as men, Paul is actually quite progressive here. He encourages them to share in the time of learning and instruction during the church's gathering. With his words to learn in quietness, he envisions an orderly atmosphere where everyone's learning potential can be encouraged and, enha and enhanced. The second point here is that, as mentioned before, the elders are given a specific charge. We see this here in Paul's charge to the church at Ephesus there in Acts 20. Their responsibility in a church, uh, their responsibilities are different than that of the other members, which again can be summed up with that of faithfully exercising ecclesiastical and doctrinal authority over the congregation. This means that ultimately, they are responsible for all the teaching, for choosing teachers, vetting topics, setting curriculum, correcting errors, etc. And this is one of the responsibilities that sets them apart. To teach with authority in the church, a role reserved for pastors, elders, would therefore include, but not necessarily be limited to, setting and describing the practice of church policies, explicit teaching of doctrine, providing the continued and a regular instruction for the church assembly, exercising church discipline, and presenting a case on something controversial that could potentially disrupt church unity, things like that. Teachers who do not share in the role of an elder should avoid those matters unless they are working alongside the eldership with specific permission. So in light of the points above, our policy here, at least for now, is this. Women should not be disqualified from teaching men simply because they are women. Two, women, however, may not serve as elders. Three, non-believers, men and women alike, should avoid any kind of instruction in the church that belongs to those who serve as elders. So as you can see, the case here kind of requires some explanation, but when you actually get into it, it's pretty simple and straightforward. This practice might change down the road, for it's something that continues to get a lot of attention among a number of Bible scholars and we will want to follow those developments and see if there might be at some point compelling reasons to make adjustments. Okay, now for part two.